This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I like Wednesday night. I, I feel like it's an opportunity where we can learn and teach a little bit, a little different uh, than uh, preaching. And so tonight is a little bit more of a teaching, I think, lesson. Uh, and I hope maybe we'll learn, but uh, we'll kind of start off with this question. Is there a Santa Claus? You know, no known species of reindeer can fly. But there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified. And while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely rule out flying reindeer, which perhaps maybe only Santa has ever seen. There are 2 billion children, which we would say persons under 18, in the world. But since Santa doesn't appear to handle Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children, that reduces the workload to 15% of the total, so about 378 million, according to the Population Reference Bureau. At an average rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes. One presumes there's at least one good child in each home. Santa has 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth, assuming he travels east to west, which seems logical. This works out to be 822.6 visits per second. This is to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up the chimney, get back into the sleigh, and move on to the next house. By the way, do you know where, how much Santa pays to park his sleigh? It's on the house. <laughs> Assuming that each of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth, which of course we know to be false, but for the purpose of our calculations, we'll accept it. We are now talking about 0.78 miles per, house, per household, a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting stops to do what most of us must do at least once in 31 hours. Plus, he has to eat, feed, etc. This means that Santa's sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. Now, for purpose of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses Space Probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per hour per second. A conventional reindeer can run at tops 15 miles per hour. The payload on the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, we'll say two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons, not counting Santa, who is described as overweight. On land, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds, even granting that flying reindeer could pull 10 times the normal amount. We cannot do the job with eight or even nine. We would need 214,200 reindeer. This increases the payload, not even counting the weight of the sleigh, to 353,430 tons. And again, for comparison, this is four times the weight of the Queen Elizabeth. Not the weight of Queen Elizabeth. The Queen Elizabeth. 
It's a ship. <laughs> Cheeky. All right, 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance. This will heat the reindeer up in the same fashion as spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. In short, they will burst into flames <laughs> almost instantaneously, exposing the reindeer behind them and create deafening sonic booms in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subject to a centrifugal force 17,500.6 times greater than gravity. So a 250-pound Santa, which seems quite slim, would be pinned to the back of his sleigh by 4,315,015 pounds of force. So in conclusion, if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he did it once, and he's dead now. I hope I did not ruin Christmas for you. <laughs> I have been known to do that in services when I forgot that I had children sitting here. Uh, and, and I did what their parents should have done years ago. Uh, but uh, over time, the truth often gets embellished. Legends are born, myths are created. Take, for example, Santa Claus. History affirms that there used to be a real man by the name of Nicholas who came from an area in what is now modern Turkey. Nicholas' region was Lycia. You, you may recall from Acts chapter 27 that Lycia was the territory where the centurion, who was escorting Paul to Rome, found a ship for the last stage of that extradition. Nicholas lived during the 4th century, and we would, he would use his own fortune to give gifts to the poor. It was Nicholas's charity of giving gifts to poor children that eventually earned him canonization in the Catholic Church. It was St. Nicholas, the name that the Dutch meshed together to form Sinterklaas, that eventually influenced the Anglicized version we now know as Santa Claus. And of course, you know the rest of the story and how far our modern version of Santa Claus has come from that original historical figure of Nicholas. How now we must deal with an overweight do-gooder who stalks children in their sleep and breaks into homes one night a year, surely thinking his kind acts of charity will overcome the risk of being caught on Ring or Simply Safe, Vivint or ADT or any number of security systems and cameras that are certainly there. There's also another embellishment of an individual that through the centuries has taken on literally for some godlike, or in this case, goddess-like status. And that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary has long been venerated. The veneration really goes back to A.D. 431 at the Council of Ephesus, which met to deal with some heresies that were being taught. The main heresy to be addressed by that council was what was called Nestorianism. Now, Nestorian was a bishop, the archbishop in Constantinople, who taught that Mary was the bearer of Christ, but not the bearer of God. He was Jesus, she was Jesus' mother, but not God's mother. Now, while on face value, this actually sounds correct, what Nestorius was teaching was that Jesus had two natures, completely distinct from each other. 
Nestorius taught that the divine and human natures are completely distinct and separate, but this idea is not scriptural. It goes against the Orthodox Christian doctrine of what we call the hypostatic union, which states that Christ was fully 100% God and he was 100% man. He was one indivisible person. Now, our point tonight is not to deal with the heresy of Nestorianism, but rather to see that at the Council of Ephesus, and then 20 years later at the Council of Chalcedon, with Nestorianism being taught, it was determined that Mary, these councils determined that Mary was not only the mother of a human being, Jesus, she was also the mother of God incarnate. Thus, she was not just the, what they said, the Christakos, the bearer of Christ. She was also the Theotokos, the bearer of God. She was the mother of Christ and then became the mother of God. It was from this idea that was originally used to fight against a very real heresy, Nestorianism, that the Catholic Church formed their own heresies, of which one has become Mariology, a term which is defined in Catholic theology as the systematic study of the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her place in the economy of salvation. What began as simply a clarification, a theological clarification of the role that Mary played in the incarnation has become heresy itself, which is why the title Mother of God no longer has pure biblical theological underpinnings, but rather has collected now 1,500 years of heretical baggage promoted by the Catholic Church. I like how John Calvin explained why this term, Theotokos, should be abandoned, and why he rejected calling Mary the mother of God. He said, I cannot think such language either right or becoming or suitable. To call the Virgin Mary the mother of God can only serve to confirm the ignorance in their own superstitions. How did these superstitions that Calvin speaks of form? How did the heresy form from a well-meaning, even a theologically accurate term as Theotokos? Well, after the Council of Ephesus, the pendulum swung so far the other way as Mary became venerated because she was the mother of Jesus. In Roman Catholic teachings, the veneration of Mary is a natural consequence of Christology. The Catholic Church viewed Jesus and Mary as son and mother, redeemer and redeemed. But, and here's the point, the Catholic orthodoxy was saying that you cannot understand one without the other. Perhaps their own words can explain it. In 1946, Catholic Mariologist Gabriel Roschini wrote the Compendium Marilogi, which is simply Latin for collection of studies on Mary, in which he explained that Mary not only participated in the birth of the physical Jesus, but with conception, she entered with him into a spiritual union. The divine salvation plan, being not only material, includes a permanent spiritual unity with Christ. This sentiment was expressed by Pope John Paul II in his encyclical, Redemptoris Mater, where the former pope refers to Mary as the mother of the church. He said, and this is what I, and I quote, At the center of this mystery, in the midst of this wonderment of faith, stands Mary. As the loving mother of the Redeemer, she was the first to experience it. To the wonderment of nature, you bore your creator. Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict, 
wrote, It is necessary to go back to Mary if you want to return to that truth about Jesus. Truth about the church and truth about man. And John Paul again described Mariology as a program to all of Christianity and that to ensure an authentic approach to Christology, we must return to the whole truth about Mary. So while Jesus may be the way to heaven, the way to Jesus, according to the church, was through Mary. Can you see the heresy? Remember, it was Nestorianism that denied the union of the divine and human natures in the Son of God, Jesus. The Council of Ephesus confirmed that the divinity of Jesus was so important because it meant Jesus was God. But now the Catholic Church is saying that your only way to Jesus is through Mary. But that makes no sense. If Jesus is God, and he was, and honestly the Catholic Church does affirm that Jesus was God or is God, Then by venerating Mary and creating a spiritual union with Jesus, logically they are adding to salvation, saying Mary is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to God but through her. Now do you see the heresy? But the heresy is not only in the doctrine of salvation. Mariology has produced three other Marian dogmas in addition to the heresy of the mother of God. The other Marian dogmas are the immaculate conception, that Mary was free from original sin in the moment of conception. Mary was sinless, as they say. Perpetual virginity, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a virgin. Antipartum, in partu, and in postpartum, before, during, and after the birth of Christ. And assumption that Mary did not die, but was miraculously received body and soul into heaven. Of course, you can see that these are logical conclusions of the mother of God heresy. If Mary was the mother of God, then of course she would also have to be sinless, the Immaculate Conception. And if sinless, she could never have known mortal man, perpetual virginity. And she could never have died, assumption. All these heresies are built on the veneration of Mary. But this evening, I actually don't care about what the Catholic Church says about Mary or Theotokos, or the Marian dogmas. While many of you may have a Catholic background, and there may be some listening who are Roman Catholic, or you have family members who are, I'm going to assume that in this crowd, it is not entrenched in the heresy of of worshiping Mary as the mother of God. But I do think we, as Baptists, and often as fundamental independent Baptists, Swing the pendulum too far the other way and fail to understand, or maybe we fail to truly appreciate the role Mary played in bringing Christ into the natural world. So this evening, I'd like to paint a portrait of Mary and consider the Christmas story through her eyes and from her perspective. But first this. In 1984 a president of a small Baptist college in Lynchburg, Virginia, contacted one of its young aspiring alums and requested help in writing their annual Christmas program, The Living Christmas Tree. Of course, the college president was Jerry Falwell. And the school, though known then as Liberty Baptist College, now Liberty University, contacted a Christian entertainer and comedian, Mark Lowry. Mark was 34 at the time. As he wrote the program, he meditated on the Christmas story found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and especially pondered the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he asked several questions. Did Mary know her son was as special as he was? Did she know that her son had come to save humanity, including her? 
Did she know that her baby would be able to heal, to calm storms, to walk on water? Did Mary know that she was kissing the face of God? Seven years later, Mark contacted his buddy, Buddy Green, and asked for his help writing the music. A few weeks later, Mark Lowry and Green met up and recorded the song and then got into the hands of another person, Michael English, who sang it included in the album he was making at the time. Of course, you recognize the song. We sang it Sunday. Mary, did you know? Now, this song has become a constant in the Christmas season, and I have found Christians either love it or hate it. Some call it cheesy. Others say it's inspiring. Others say it's unbiblical, while others just don't like it because a comedian wrote it. A country music star wrote the music for it, and a contemporary artist was the first to sing it. I, for one, I like the song. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it Sunday. In fact, we tried at home to belt it like that. <laughs> but not as good. I do like the song. And I think it's more theologically sound than sometimes we realize. I've seen people pick it apart, and I'm not going to preach the song tonight. But I hope we can persevere through distractions of our own making and consider the theologically rich question is this. What did Mary actually know? I'm not going to teach or preach the lyrics of that song. But I'm going to use it, I just did, as an introduction to a brief walk through the Christmas story that I would like this evening to consider from Mary's perspective. Mary's first introduced into the narrative in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1. It is quite possible that Mary's actual name was really the Hebrew version, Miriam, or even Aramaic, the same. But it has been Greco-ized to become Mary. She was probably between the ages of 12, 14, based upon the cultural considerations of the time. We don't know for sure, but she was young. We do know that she was betrothed to Joseph. Matthew first mentions her as the promised wife, espoused to Joseph, who was of the royal lineage of David. You'll recall that the book of Matthew was written to share the good news of the coming Messiah, that Christ came as king. So when Matthew concludes the genealogy in verse 16 with these words, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. He was making no small claim on the royal heritage of Jesus. Matthew then moves directly into the marriage relationship in that chapter, you'll recall, through the marriage relationship of Mary and Joseph. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused, engaged, or betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before any consummation of the marriage, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Now, I want to just draw a quick note here. I like how Matthew introduces this birth story. He starts with, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, and he goes all the way back. He doesn't start with delivery. He goes back to conception. This is a simple anecdotal evidence that life begins at conception, not delivery. The story of Jesus' birth started nine months before he actually entered into this world. Now back to our story. We go to, over to Luke and see an almost exact narrative. 
In Luke 1, Luke provides a little more of the biographical sketch of Mary, but he introduces the story very similarly to Matthew. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, introduces Mary this way. Now, I know you guys are scrambling, turning your Bibles. It's going to go fast. All right. Good luck. Let's move. And in the sixth month of the angel Gabriel, of the month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We're reminded here again of Mary's virginity, her espousal to Joseph, and her Davidic lineage. Luke outlines that lineage in greater detail in Luke 3. But unlike Matthew, who traces the heritage through Joseph, Luke traces it through Mary's side. We also see in verse 26 an important clue as to when this appearance happened. Luke says it was in the sixth month. And I think that is, if you look at the context, a reference to verse 24. So in that context, it would read, verse 24, And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, after those days, let me take it back even further, Zacharias has just come home from his duty in Jerusalem in the temple. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. And in, where we're at now, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Just as an aside here, if we were to work backwards and really look at Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, and what he was doing in the temple, he was fulfilling his duty as a member of the course of Abiah, Luke 1, 5 and following, and when, he was, and when he was doing it, as part of the eighth course, 2 Chronicles chapters 20, 24, verses 1 through 19, lays out these orders and courses. If we looked at that, based on what we know about the courses and the relationship to Passover, I think we could actually fairly be accurate in calculating that Zacharias was visited by Gabriel in early summer, and John the Baptist was probably born in early spring of the following year. If this is true, based on other time hints in the narrative, it is possible that Mary left Elizabeth sometime in the spring after staying with her for three months and would then have delivered Jesus sometime in early fall, maybe September or October. Of course, this is all conjecture based on just the information and the time dates we have in the narrative. But we'll go back to our story. Elizabeth is six months into her pregnancy, when Gabriel visits Mary, she's still in Nazareth when Gabriel comes and says to her, Hail thou that are highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. Gabriel then tells her that she is going to have a baby. Let's allow the Bible at this point to tell the story. Luke chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 29. And when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. In other words, why am I blessed? How am I blessed among even those of my own gender? And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, 
and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give him unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So from here we do know that Mary does know some things now. She's been informed. But I think we need to be careful that we do not conclude that Mary had a complete understanding of everything. For example, Gabriel tells her that the Messiah is going to be great and the Son of God and he will inherit the throne of David. Well, these are all things that were expected of the Messiah who was to come and set up a political kingdom. Too often, I think we tend to project on our biblical understanding, our understanding that is informed by the completeness of Scripture, we impose that understanding onto the characters of the Bible, including Mary. We cannot forget that we have a complete canon of Scripture, while Mary had only the New Old Testament. She was waiting for a Messiah to set up an earthly kingdom, all the way up until his death, Jesus' own disciples did not understand the spiritual victory that the first advent, advent was going to conclude with and it had over sin. It is unfair to expect Mary to know what we know. To tell Mary that her son would die for the entire world would have been strange to her indeed. So when Mary hears words like throne, reign, kingdom, even an everlasting kingdom, she had a very different, even an incomplete understanding of those terms than we do. So I don't think Mary knew that this child was indeed come to save our sons and daughters. She was only expecting him to save the nation of Israel. The mystery of the kingdom and the grafting in of the Gentiles was going to come much later. This is why I think it's interesting that, and we're jumping ahead here, when Joseph and Mary met Simeon in the temple, and Simeon said this about Jesus. He said he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And Luke records the response of Mary and Joseph. They, it says, Mary and Joseph marveled or wondered at those things spoken of him. There was much Mary did not know. Or could she, nor could she have known with such incomplete revelation. Also on the practical side, a mother once said she envied Mary because she never had to worry about a miscarriage or a birth defect or the safety of her, her unborn child. Again, I disagree. And we must be careful with how much we explain, how much we explain away when it comes to the humanity of his birth and his life. Now, I have never given birth, but I can imagine for Mary, as with all mothers, especially first-time mothers, any movement or irregularity still brought her anxiety. 
Perhaps even as time passed and as pains and discomforts of carrying a child increased, she may have began to question the validity of her angelic visitor or even question her own faith in the promise of the Messiah that she thought or she knew she was carrying in her womb. So while as parents I have never questioned the divinity of my children, my faith has never been challenged like hers must have been. Was she indeed carrying the Son of God? I think Mary's faith was challenged daily. In addition to the physical stressors being placed on her young body, I'm sure she desperately reminded herself of that incredible promise of Gabriel in Luke 1.35, the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. But sans a completed revelation, I don't think she understood all its ramifications, even though I do think she believed it. The interaction between Gabriel and Mary ends in verse 38. Remember, Mary is a spouse to Joseph when Gabriel comes. I imagine that after this visit by Gabriel and the ever-present desires every young couple has as they wait to get married, Mary does not want to stick around and wait for the gossip to start. In a small town like Nazareth, with Joseph there as well, she was, as we say today, ready to get away. And so she does. She decides to get out of town and visit her cousin Elizabeth. When Mary arrives, we get another nugget of truth about the viability of preborn infants. John, in Elizabeth's womb, he kicks. He kicks so hard, Elizabeth tells Mary that as soon as he, she heard Mary say hello, John leaped in my womb for joy. I think that is a neat piece of the story and a foreshadowing of this unique relationship between John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus. Now, if Gabriel comes to Mary when Elizabeth is in her sixth month and she stays for three months, as it says in Luke 156. Then she left Elizabeth right at nine months, so just before, maybe even just right after John was born. But it was while she was at Elizabeth's that we find out what Mary really did understand about this whole ordeal. Some have called the Song of Mary the Magnificent, which comes from the Latin, which means my soul magnifies, which is how Mary's hymn of praise begins. So let's read it. We'll begin in Luke 1, verse 46. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Let me point out just a couple things in this song of praise. First... I believe Mary still only sees the political salvation of Israel as in the promise. But now in the imminent coming of Messiah. She knows she will be a blessing to coming generations. But still no mention of nations as mentioned in the Great Commission in the Pauline epistles. She is still only considering salvation to Israel. 
Israel is the servant that has been supported. They are the progeny of Abraham, and thus they are the recipients of the Abrahamic promises to include a Messiah. Secondly, in the Magnificent, Mary is praising God for what he has done, but not necessarily for what he is going to do. Her song is not prophetic. This is because Mary still does not know all that is to come and to be accomplished with this Messiah she carries in her womb. In her song, everything, you'll see, is in the past tense. He regarded her low estate. He did great things to her. He showed her strength. He scattered the proud, and so on. The only glimpse of future expectation is that Mary is confident all generations will call her blessed. Again, generations. Certainly she knows this is a big deal, but I don't think she fully comprehends how big. And so she remains silent on the future. So no, she did not know that her son would walk on water, that he would do miracles, or maybe even that he would die and raise again. She, just like every other human, could not tell the future. She had no crystal ball. She, like us, had to live by faith. Well, our time is certainly going, and we have yet to scratch the surface of both the Christmas story and this incredible woman, who will forever stand as one of the story's major characters. And I wish we could take the time to really go through Luke 2 and see her faithfulness to Joseph, following him to Bethlehem for a census. Can you imagine, though preferring to give birth in a warm room with a midwife, surrounded by family, instead, she's escorted to a stable? I have an opinion that that stable was the innkeeper's help to her. If you'll read that word there that says there was no room for them in the inn, their inn, that word for inn, is only used one other time, and it's used in reference later on in the Gospels to the upper room. That word, room, is often a place set aside, a chamber where guests could come. I only imagine, and I don't even want to call him an innkeeper, whoever was the master of the house, came to the door, sees this woman who's about to give birth and says, you do not want to do that here with all these people. I've got a place for you. But it was still a stable. It was still low and poor. And there were still animals. And so there is dirt. But they go to the stable. And then she received shepherds. We can assume minutes, maybe even hours after the birth. Such grace. What mother wants to have visitors after giving birth in a stable, especially if one of your visitors is bent on beating his drum? <laughs> now, we don't know if the shepherds had a drum, but she receives them. And though we do not know exactly when the wise men came or how many of them came, we know she received them as well. Now, for the record, I think the wise men came closer to the birth of Jesus than not. Often people assume Jesus was almost two years old because it was under the age of two that Herod ordered all the boys to be killed. 
And also we read that the wise men came to a house. And we read that they visited a child in Matthew chapter 2. Well, history indicates that Herod died the year Jesus was born. It becomes difficult for Herod to order the murder of all the boys under two years of age, two years after he's dead. But the wise men came to a, and, they, and as to the wise men coming to a house, don't discount the fact that though the birth may have happened in a stable, it's quite possible, knowing humanity, that Mary was moved by sympathetic relatives into the house for comfort. I don't know. But the, child, the word child, we know, is used in other places to indicate a newborn. How do I know that? In Luke 1.59, John the Baptist, the word is used for child to describe him the day he was circumcised. And in Luke 2.17, the shepherd made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. It's the same word. And in Luke 2.21, Jesus was called a child on the eighth day when he was circumcised. Those uses of child are all the same word translated child in Matthew when the wise men showed up at a house in Bethlehem and saw the young child with his mother Mary and fell down and worshipped him. And when they'd opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's possible that Mary and Joseph, they may have even fled to Egypt very soon after the birth of Jesus. And perhaps even before the 40 days of her purification were ended, as is described in Luke chapter 2. But we do know that Mary kept her legal obligations and reported the birth in Jerusalem to be sure it was recorded at the temple. We also know that upon leaving Egypt and upon leaving the temple, Matthew and Luke respectively tell us that the family returned to Nazareth. I doubt they remained in Bethlehem for too long. Luke 2 also gives us insight into the mind of Mary. We already dealt with one instance, but on three instances in Luke 2, Mary is said to have pondered, marveled, and kept all the things that happened. And she kept them, she marveled and pondered them in her heart. She pondered the message delivered to the shepherds. She marveled at the things spoken by Simeon. And she kept all his, the sayings of Jesus when he told her he must be about his father's business. Sure, Mary had a front row seat in the redemption of mankind. But she was as much in need of a redeemer, and she was learning every day of motherhood just how highly favored she really was. In conclusion, Mary was an incredible woman. But she's not to be venerated or worshipped. She's not divine. But she was highly favored. And there is so much we can learn from reading how she responded to the events of the Christmas story. And it's my hope that this Christmas time, you will take time to ponder the events of the first Christmas story. That you will marvel at all that is told. And that you will keep all the sayings in your heart. Maybe it would help to remind ourselves of those rhetorical questions asked of Mary. Or maybe better not to ask if we know, but to ask if we believe that that baby that Mary delivered was the Lord of all creation. Do you believe that the baby boy would one day rule the nations? Do you believe that the baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? Do you believe 
that the sleeping child Mary held was the great I am. Let's remind ourselves of these wonderful truths during the Christmas season. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this reminder of Mary. Father, even now as I pray so that my friends in this church hear me, I'm not praying to her. For we can come boldly before the throne of grace. But Lord, we thank you that you have included in our narrative, in the narrative of these stories, these gospels, Lord, that you've included people who were human. And we see how they reacted and responded. And, and, and you have given us exactly what we need to know about them. And you've given them as examples to us. So, Father, I pray that we would read the scriptures and see it through the eyes of shepherds, of Mary and Joseph, of wise men who celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, in, as we celebrate that birth, Father, I pray that we would be again reminded of how great you are and how magnificent you are and that we would glorify and honor you in how we celebrate this Christmas holiday. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.